This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Determining the source of GI blood loss can be a challenging dilemma. On occasion, we have clues regarding where we should start looking, but in some cases, no such clues exist. It's best to use a stepwise approach to determining the source, and in most cases, this will give us the answer we need. When a cause is found, most tend to be from an upper GI source rather than the colon. Whereas an upper endoscopy and colonoscopy will determine the source in the majority, there are some cases where more aggressive techniques are required. In this podcast, we'll be discussing GI blood loss and which approach we should use to determine the source. Our guest today is Dr. Andrew Storm, a gastroenterologist from the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Andy, without any obvious GI blood loss, when should we suspect a patient has loss of blood in the GI tract? What'll give us some clues about that? Yeah, with apologies to the audience right up right off the bat. I'm a fisherman outside of work and I think of hunting down GI blood loss a lot like fishing. They call it fishing and not catching for a reason. It's the same thing with hunting down GI blood loss. It can be a real challenge and you nailed it in your summary leading into today's talk, which is that very often in a substantial majority of cases, there's going to be multiple procedures, multiple things leading up to finding that diagnosis. So I think the first message I would give our audience is don't give up hope and stay persistent because often a cause can be found. It's just, it can be a really challenging, really frustrating process to help a patient come to that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And I think encouraging the patient right off the bat, hey, this is going to be a tricky situation. We know you're losing blood. We don't know where from exactly but uh, stick with me, we're going to find it, is a message I like to give my patients right off the bat. That first step, you're right, is just the physical exam. The physical exam is not dead and is very important in that first step. Guaiac stool testing requires probably a, a rectal exam, and that's often our first clue. Is there truly evidence of bleeding in the GI tract? Meaning, do you see very dark, tarry, sticky stool, melana, or are we seeing something more like an obscure GI bleed where we may not see evidence of that bleeding? And I think defining those terms right out the gate are an important thing. So overt GI bleeding, when you're communicating with your referring gastroenterologist, overt bleeding is melana or hematochesia. That's where we really see evidence of that blood leaving the body. Occult bleeding is where you, you'll have iron deficiency anemia with or without that guaiac positive stool. I often hear folks use the term obscure GI bleeding as I did recently. It can be incorrect, but obscure GI bleeding means you've really put in all that work. You and the patient have gone through multiple tests and evaluations and haven't been able to find an answer. So again, overt bleeding, you see the blood. Occult means we have iron deficiency anemia, no known source yet, maybe some guaiac positive stool obscure GI bleeding, no source on multiple studies, which we'll talk about. I think defining that up front, making sure we get our terminology correct, and then moving into that physical exam and history with the patient, are they seeing blood? One of the mysteries of GI bleeding is that blood can come and go. A bleeding lesion, like a Dulafoy's lesion, can cause very profound GI blood loss one day, and then none at all the very next day. 
And so getting that history can suggest, number one, do they have GI blood loss? And number two, does your patient, maybe you can start to get a sense of where that blood loss is coming from. I recall a patient uh, probably about five, six years ago, he was in his upper 80s. And on his initial set of labs, he had an anemia. Hemoglobin was about 9.6. And I did iron studies and it showed he had an iron deficiency anemia. And I was literally filling out the orders for an upper endoscopy and colonoscopy. And while I was doing that, he said, Doc, does it make any difference if I donate a lot of blood? And being in his upper 80s, I assumed it was there was an age limit, but apparently there is not. So you, you can't always uh, determine that this is GI blood loss. But yeah, uh, yeah in most I cases, that's I an think. important thing, too, is, um, you know, I can recall stories where I was paged to come evaluate coffee ground emesis, but it was just a, a lack of communication between teams. The patient actually literally had just vomited their uh, Dunkin Donuts coffee that they had just <laughs> had to drink. So communication is key. Talking with the patient, absolutely key. And you're right, uh, we have to consider that iron deficiency anemia is not all GI blood loss. We have to consider our female patients who may have a gynecologic source of blood loss as well, and that's often an explanation. That's often a very challenging case where you're seeing a premenopausal female with an iron deficiency anemia, and you've got to determine if her menstrual blood loss is excessive. And a lot of times patients can't really judge that because it seems normal for them. But uh, yeah, that's a challenging patient. So what's the role for the occult blood test? If it's positive, I suppose it does help you, but what if it's negative? Yeah, you ask 10 doctors, I think you'll get 10 different opinions. I personally like to see that on our inpatients. It gives me a sense of whether there's something active, if we may find something now, but there's not a whole lot of science behind that decision-making on my part, I'll admit. If that is negative and we have iron deficiency anemia, particularly in the right patient, and by that I'm talking about Someone, honestly, now we're realizing probably over the age of 40, we need to worry about cancer and we need to make sure that we've done our due diligence to prove that that's not the source of that iron deficiency anemia. Everyone's probably noticed that our societies in GI and across the board, oncology and, and primary care as well, are moving that age for screening forward. What we've found is that the age group between 45 and 50 is just as likely to develop a colon cancer as those in the age group of 50 to 55. That's why we recently saw that screening guideline for colonoscopy move up from 50 to 45, really for all comers. I'd say iron deficiency anemia is enough to get me excited about needing to do a workup, whether or not we have an occult or guaiac positive stool test. Sure. Some of these lesions bleed intermittently and you may catch one when it's not bleeding. Well, let's talk about what are the common causes of GI blood loss from the upper GI tract first? Yeah. So peptic ulcer disease, you know, used to be really the number one, two, three, four, and five cause of upper GI bleeding. We've seen with PPI use and with the discovery of H. pylori, treatment of H. pylori, testing for H. pylori, but mostly the fact that PPIs are now in the top 10 prescribed medications in America, a lot of that peptic ulcer disease is being taken care of. We as gastroenterologists are treating less duodenal and peptic strictures because people aren't developing those severe, severe ulcers that result in stricturing in the upper GI tract. It's still a very common cause. Use of NSAIDs, H. pylori, still reign as leading causes of upper GI bleeding. But we think about varices in the right patient, leading esophageal varices, or other stigmata of portal hypertension, like portal hypertensive gastropathy. 
These are all fairly common causes of GI bleeding in your patient, maybe who has portal hypertension or cirrhosis. In your typical younger patient, we think about peptic ulcer disease being a leading cause. But again, with age and risk factors, the worry for cancer is there. Less common causes like Dulafoy's lesions are something to think about. And then a very common cause of upper GI bleeding, small bowel bleeding, and colonic bleeding or lower GI bleeding is arteriovenous malformations or AVMs. Those can be particularly troublesome. And the distribution of those lesions changes based on the patient and their characteristics. Something to consider, though, throughout the entire span of the GI tract. Okay. And how about common causes of bleeding from the colon? Yeah, from the colon, our biggest concern is going to be for cancer. That's what we have to exclude. And that's the question we're asking when we do a colonoscopy is, does this patient have colon cancer? We're also statistically looking for things like bleeding diverticulae. So diverticulosis, many of my mentors have told me, I dare you to find someone who has diverticulitis and bleeding diverticulosis. Uh, it's usually one or the other, but some patients, their ticks will bleed and, and that requires an evaluation. Rarely, if ever, do we catch it in the act and rarely, if ever, are we able to act or treat a bleeding diverticulum but it's still helpful to know that that's the cause and not something else. Ischemic colitis, so if you have a patient who just ran a marathon or just got through an ICU stay or is in the ICU, ischemic injury to the colon is fairly common and, and causes bleeding during the reperfusion phase of healing. So that's something to consider for some people. Hemorrhoids are a very common cause of hematochesia and often lead to evaluation. I still think it's worth the time Again, in the right patient, if you ask them when they wipe after going to the bathroom, are they just seeing blood on the toilet paper at the end? That may give you some reassurance that this is hemorrhoid-related bleeding and maybe doesn't require evaluation. But if they're of age for colon cancer screening, if they have a family history, or if they're seeing blood mixed in with the stool and a change in the stool habits, that's a reason that I think they should undergo a full colonoscopy evaluation. Mm -hmm. Well, the vast majority of patients are going to have bleeding either from the upper GI tract or the colon, but in those that have small bowel bleeding, what do you look for? What do you see there? Yeah, this is where it really becomes deep sea fishing because you need special equipment, special skills. You need a bigger boat, so to speak. And this is not something that's done everywhere in the community. So you, you want to seek out your uh, referring gastroenterologist carefully. But the small bowel, while it is infrequent, so probably less than 10% of GI bleeding, well less than 10% of GI bleeding comes from the small intestine, it can be a really troublesome source of chronic GI blood loss. Again, the number one, two, and three cause of GI bleeding from the small bowel is going to be an AVM or arteriovenous malformation. And those, unfortunately, are often persistent. They often multiply after you treat one, it may replicate and come back in another location. That's our biggest concern. That said, in a young patient, inflammatory bowel disease is something to consider. So in a patient referred to me for evaluation of the small bowel, inflammatory bowel disease is something I'm thinking about. A polyposis syndrome, like familial adenomatous polyposis, that's something I'll think about. It becomes pretty obvious during the colonoscopy that they have something like that. And then while uh, Meckel's diverticulum is fairly rare and rarely diagnosed beyond the pediatric years, 
I've still seen young patients uh, for my practice as an adult practice present with really impressive GI bleeding that happens intermittently. We do a Meckles scan and find that they you know, didn't quite follow the Meckles rule of two, where there's 2% of the population, two inches in length, two feet from the ileocecal valve in the small intestine, the terminal ileum, and generally happening or being diagnosed before the age of two. Sometimes into the teens and early 20s, we'll, we'll diagnose a Meckles. That's something to think about. Over age 40, definitely angioectasia. Auscultation of the chest is important because we want to see if that's angioectasia associated with aortic stenosis. That may be fixable or curable with an aortic valve replacement. Certainly some small bowel cancers can present as well with iron deficiency anemia, though uncommon. Mm -hmm. So when we're seeing a patient that we suspect has GI blood loss, iron deficiency anemia, what questions should we ask them that might give us clues as to the location of the blood loss? Yeah, it's a great question. I find this can be very challenging, but asking about reflux, asking about new dysphagia. So this is hinting at cancers of the upper GI tract, new nausea or vomiting. Certainly the best clue is, you know, do you vomit blood? Um, that gives you a really clear description that in more than 90% of cases with vomiting of blood or coffee grounds, there's going to be a lesion that's proximal to the ligament of trites at the junction between the third and fourth portion of the duodenum. That's a patient where you could refer directly for upper endoscopy, probably skip the drama of a colon preparation and have that patient come right to us for an upper GI evaluation. But unfortunately, it's often not that obvious. Again, things like dysphagia, upper GI symptoms, belching, feeling unwell, abdominal pain, eliciting a history of NSAID use. Unfortunately, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are a, a leading cause of GI blood loss. And unfortunately, while they do most often cause an upper GI ulcer, I've seen in young people and even colleagues lesions in the small bowel and in the colon that can happen and, and cause bleeding as well. Seeing fresh red blood from below, again, unfortunately, not a guarantee that this is a colonic source. So I'll try to suss out, are they seeing old blood, digested blood, suggesting a more proximal source in the toilet? Or if they're passing bright red blood from below, is it voluminous, which could be a brisk upper GI bleed or small bowel bleed? Or is it something that's happening near the end of a bowel movement? It can be a little tricky. I will say in my own practice, I rarely order just a colonoscopy. I'll often want that upper GI examination when there's true overt bleeding. When the patient sees blood in the toilet, that's someone who's going to get a combination upper endoscopy and colonoscopy. If it's just iron deficiency anemia and they haven't had their screening exam, that's someone I'll send for a colonoscopy maybe up front unless they have red flag symptoms above. It was something that I missed when I, in my primary care days, um, this is a, a newer recommendation, is that for the right patient, particularly in a male over the age of 60, we'll start thinking about Barrett's esophagus and screening for that. So another reason why maybe you send a patient for an upper endoscopy if they're already coming for a colonoscopy, that can often be combined under a single anesthetic and results in less charges to the patient overall than, than separating those procedures out. You mentioned NSAID use. Do you put low-dose aspirin in that category used for cardiac purposes? 
Yeah, unfortunately. And I don't even separate out enteric coating. I don't think that that makes a big difference. So all of these things can lead to ulcers and erosions throughout the GI tract, which can bleed. Okay. Yeah. Is anything on physical exam helpful? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, if you're thinking about something like, why is my 80-year-old patient having recurrent AVMs? Every time I send them to the gastroenterologist, they do a little bit of coagulation and zap and AVM in the GI tract. Man, why do they just keep happening? And I think that's something where you need to ask a question. And again, auscultation of the chest may point you towards, or an echocardiogram towards aortic stenosis as a cause of kind of low-grade ischemia of the GI tract. The GI tract does a great job. It's a, it's a team player does a great job of taking the hit and giving up blood so that the rest of the body can survive. And so that low-level ischemia that can happen with aortic stenosis throughout the body results in release of angiogenic factors that cause blood vessels to form. And those blood vessels, unfortunately, sometimes are pathologic. That's that AVM. And so that might be a patient I refer to cardiology for consideration of aortic valve replacement. There are other things, very rare diagnoses, purpura, other autoimmune and vascular diseases, vasculitis that can cause GI blood loss and may manifest as skin findings. We all know that we need to appreciate the non-GI manifestations of inflammatory bowel disease. So the right patient with low back pain or stiffness, the right patient with oral rashes may indicate a GI source. In general, those things are not pointing me towards one direction or another when I'm thinking about, do I want to order an endoscopy or colonoscopy? That's, for me, usually more of a decision based on the appearance of the blood, the tempo of the bleeding that we're seeing. Well, as is often the case, we don't have any clues, or maybe they have you know, a nickel's worth of reflux, uh, maybe some occasional white bleeding, and you feel some external hemorrhoids. So we don't really have a lot of good clues. Where should we start with the testing? Making sure that the blood work looks like an iron deficiency anemia, a microcytic iron deficiency anemia is one first step. Again, an increasing cause of iron deficiency anemia in my referral practice is Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. So when you move the duodenum off to the side, keep in mind that most of our iron is absorbed. It requires the intrinsic factor from the distal stomach. It requires the duodenum. And in Roux-en-Y gastric bypass anatomy, that has all been moved off to the side. So there's a shortage of intrinsic factor. There's a, a shortage of small bowel through which the iron can be absorbed. And so that's something you have to keep in mind. You know, has the patient had a surgery that maybe alters their absorptive capabilities for iron? But otherwise, I generally start my exam, again, based on age, usually with an upper endoscopy and colonoscopy as my first best test. Because as you'd mentioned earlier, 90% or more of GI bleeding is going to come from one of those two sources. So let's say we order an upper endoscopy and colonoscopy. And on upper endoscopy, you know, a little bit of esophagitis is found, maybe a little bit of gastritis. Do you continue with the colonoscopy to make sure you're not missing either a second lesion or maybe the, what you found is not the cause? Yeah, what you've described makes me uncomfortable calling it a day just after the upper endoscopy. So I will often move into the colonoscopy portion of the procedure. And patients often want to know, which do you do first? That may be different in different practices. Sometimes the colonoscopy will be performed first, but generally the upper endoscopy first. 
a little esophagitis, a little gastritis, I'm uncomfortable using that as an explanation for a, a true iron deficiency anemia. So I'd move on to the colonoscopy in that situation. Okay. And let's say both are negative. Where do we go next? So there, you know, based on a lot of societal guidelines, you know, this is not greedy gastroenterologists wanting you to send patients for procedures again. This is truly based on guideline and evidence. Very often in a substantial minority of patients, you'll find the explanation on a second go around. So I just have to, again, communicate to the audience. I am amazed how sometimes a little cancer can hide and just doing the right retroflexion view or just having the perfect preparation for the colon can make a difference in finding or diagnosing uh, something of, of concern. So in general, it is recommended that after one go around, we'll repeat for sure the colonoscopy, probably the upper endoscopy as well, again, depending on the patient and their symptoms. Okay. So is that fit also for the patient who you've done all the studies, upper, lower, small bowel, and continues to have evidence of GI blood loss, you know, persistent anemia despite ferrocelfate therapy and uh, still a heme-positive stool? Yeah, so don't call it quits. This is where that persistence comes in for sure. And after those two maybe upper endoscopies and two colonoscopies that have been unrevealing, probably your endoscopist or your gastroenterologist should have done some small bowel biopsies in the upper GI tract, not forgetting that celiac disease is an increasing cause of iron deficiency anemia. If all of that is negative, then it's time to, to move on and into that black box of the small intestine. And that's where, again, depending on local expertise and availability, there are a couple different options. Most gastroenterologists are comfortable using a colonoscope, which is just a longer instrument than an upper GI scope, doing what we call a push enteroscopy. And that's just pushing a little further into the small intestine because even just including one, two, three, four feet of the small intestine in your exam will statistically improve your likelihood of, of diagnosing an AVM in particular. They tend to be proximal in the small intestine if they're in the small intestine, uh, it'll improve your odds of finding that diagnosis of a GI blood loss. So a push enteroscopy is a very reasonable kind of fifth procedure after those two upper and two lower exams. A push enteroscopy maybe even considered at that second upper endoscopy procedure. Then we need to move into the small intestine from there. And that's where video capsule endoscopy, which is a small swallowed pill, it makes a video of the small bowel and allows us to diagnose but not treat lesions. So allows us to find potentially localize where blood loss may be coming from. Again, we're looking for a range of things from tumors to inflammatory bowel disease or, or AVMs. And then the alternative to that, which is increasingly available, maybe even more so than video capsule enterography, is that of CT enterography and cross-sectional imaging like CT. So CT angiography is a great study. If you think the patient is having active bleeding, that can often find a little blush of contrast, which is extravasating into the bowel. That can tell us where to hunt down bleeding in the GI tract. CT enterography is by far the most sensitive test for diagnosing a small mural lesion in the small intestine, basically a small either polyp or growth tumor, maybe a stromal tumor, for example, that's causing bleeding and would be quickly cured with a laparoscopic surgery resection. Well, you've described some new uh, procedures, which we didn't have available even a decade or so ago. 
Well, I'm going to ask you to look into the future, Andy. And um, are there any new studies or future directions to look forward to in detecting bleeding? Yeah, my colleagues here at Mayo are doing a wonderful job of, of trying to pin down this really difficult situation of hunting down GI blood loss. And so both on the radiology side, where they're constantly improving the cross-sectional imaging like CT enterography, like the CT angiography, those things are all popular. We also have available at a place like Mayo the ability to do provocative testing. So we can give a patient heparin or another blood thinner, which can quickly be turned off if the situation becomes emergent. But we can actually use a blood thinner to help find and localize either through angiography with one of our interventional radiologists or endoscopy. Uh, we can actually perform the procedure while on uh, heparin anticoagulation to help find and treat an area of bleeding. I'm most excited about some of the non-invasive options that are coming down the road. So none of these things are commercially available yet, but I anticipate will be some studies ongoing at Mayo Clinic where we're looking at swallowed capsules that can help tell an emergency physician or a primary care physician in the office, yes, there is in fact blood in the stomach. So a capsule that could be swallowed. And again, in the clinic, it would just give a yes or no answer. Those sorts of things I think are, are exciting and potentially the future for point of care testing on the spot to determine when you need to get a gastroenterologist involved. Well, there are some exciting novel approaches. Well, Andy, I'm going to ask you to give maybe two or three key points which summarize our discussion on determining the source of GI blood loss. Yeah, I think, you know, patients are first. And I always think about number one, setting up my patient for success and for them to stick with you for a, a disease process like obscure GI bleeding. They need to understand right up front that it's going to be uh, potentially challenging. So my summary points would be Number one, make sure your patient knows this could be tricky, but you're going to stick with them. And if they stick with you, you're going to work through all the possible causes of GI bleeding. Number two, don't forget colonoscopy. Don't forget that your main job is ruling out a cancer, which could be curable if determined and found early enough in its stage. And then again, number three, don't give up and feel free to refer patients. We'd be happy to help with these sorts of issues. It's a common thing for a referral center to chip in and help out with if you're having problems with these patients out in the community. We've been discussing determining the source of GI blood loss with Dr. Andrew Storm, a gastroenterologist in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology from the Mayo Clinic. Andy, thank you for this uh, fascinating discussion. It was my absolute pleasure. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. <music>